Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Our gracious Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, the one whose birth we celebrate because of the life that he lived, the death that he gave, the resurrection that you offered. That we might have life, we might have relationship with you, that we might have a hearing in your presence. We thank you that you hear our prayers and you answer them in accord with your will. Thank you for reminding us today of what this is all about. And we thank you that you have given us the privilege of not only knowing you, but of living our lives in service to you. Lord, we pray that you will challenge our hearts, that you encourage our hearts through your word today. You will develop a deeper understanding of who you are and what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus, in sending Him here to be born into this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Harold Myra and Marshall Shelley write in their book, The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham, These words, they said, Billy was so focused on bringing his message to every venue that he would somehow always find a way to do it. His use of the microphone check illustrates the intensity of his focus. A Larry Ross firm handled media and public relations for more than 23 years for the Graham organization. Ross says, One of the distinctives of Mr. Graham's ministry has been his ability to make positive points for the gospel in any situation. You can ask Billy Graham how he gets his suits dry cleaned on the road and he'll turn it into a gospel witness. He says, I cut my teeth in the corporate world before I worked for Mr. Graham. And I set up numerous media interviews. Almost always before a TV interview, they do a microphone check and they ask the interviewee, to say something, anything, so they can adjust the audio settings. And so often a corporate executive uh, for that check would count to 10 or say his ABCs or cite uh, what he had for breakfast. Mr. Graham would always say the same thing. He would quote John 3.16. When I asked Mr. Graham why he does that, he replied, because that way, If I'm not able to communicate the gospel clearly during the interview, at least the cameraman has heard it. Martin Luther said, John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. It is the gospel contained in one verse. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all the Bible. Even many in our world that have never darkened the door of a church have probably heard 
something about John 3.16. Usually, for those who have grown up in the church, usually one of, if not the first Bible verse they remember hearing and probably the one they most remember memorizing as a child. And as a result of that, sometimes we can think, well, that John 3.16, that's elementary. That's for children. That's for unbelievers. Well, I've been a Christian for 25, 30, 40 years. I've moved beyond John 3.16. Well, I have news for you if you think that way. We never move past John 3.16. Yes, the gospel, the, the, the message of John 3.16 is the foundation of our relationship with God, but it is also the motivation for our ministry and obedience to Christ. And quite often, the reason why we might lose sight of obedience or might lose track of motivation for serving and living for Christ is because we have lost sight of the gospel. We've moved beyond it somehow in some way. And so it's important not only for those who do not know the Lord, but for those who've walked with the Lord for many years to be reminded of the simple truths found in John 3.16. To shore up the foundation. Maybe there's a, a nuance of hearing it a little differently. A different way of hearing about it or having it explained that will trigger something within our hearts. Will help us to gain a deeper understanding of this gospel that provides the solid foundation upon which we live our lives, upon which we serve Christ. And so it's important for us to come back to it periodically. And so this morning, as we focus upon love, I couldn't think of a better passage to focus upon than John 3.16 as we consider the idea of love, the gift of love. And so what I want to do is I want to read the context in which this verse is found. It's a conversation between Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cloak of darkness at nighttime, probably because he didn't want his other Pharisee friends to know that he was coming sincerely to have a conversation with Jesus. Because they were gaining an opposition to Jesus at this point. So let me read verses 1 through 21 of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How, how can a man 
be born when he is old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Word, I'm sorry, water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and do you not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be, should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So we have a context in which this verse is found, a conversation between an earnest seeker of the truth and Jesus, in which Jesus explains to him, you must have a rebirthing experience. Of course, Nicodemus didn't understand that, because he's thinking humanly. Jesus is speaking spiritually, and he says, it's like the wind you feel it, you know that it's there, but you have no idea where it's come from or where it is going. And so it is with this concept, born of the Spirit. You can't see it, but you can experience it. And he says it's, if you recall in the Old Testament, and of course as a Pharisee, he knew the Old Testament well, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. An image of the gospel in the Old Testament, which we'll come back to. And then he gives them these words. For God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only, his begotten, only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but instead have eternal or everlasting life. Let me break this verse down for us. And my hope is 
that if there's someone in the hearing of my voice today that does not know Christ, that they will understand the love that God has for them. And what it is that God calls them to do in response to that. But I also hope that for those who know Christ already, would see something here, something here, that would be of help in their walk with Christ. In their service to Jesus. It'll be something afresh, a new, a nuance, a difference that might be of help to us all today. We first focus upon the gift given. We see that God demonstrated love, right? For God so loved. God took the initiative in this relationship. It was God's idea, not man's. In fact, we're told in Romans 3 that there are none righteous, none who understand, there are none who seek after God. None of us on our own would ever say, hey, I'd like to know this God. We wouldn't. The Bible is very clear. There is none. So we're all in that condition together. It's important that we remember that when, we're, when we've been walking with the Lord for many years because we can begin to think, well, because we've walked with Jesus, because we've been going to church and doing these things, we're somehow in a better place. Or a better person than someone who hasn't. The fact of the matter is, there's nothing about you that would ever cause you to want to go after God. It was God's idea and God's initiative to step into this world, to take the initiative, to have a relationship with us. John, in his first epistle, writes this in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that He sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 19, He says, we love because He first loved us. God took the initiative. If you are in a relationship with somebody, maybe you're married, some point in that relationship, one of you had to take the initiative, right, first. One of you had to be the one to step in and say, I have an interest in this person. I have an interest in a relationship with this person. God took the initiative. God said, I want a relationship with you. And so he demonstrated that love. In fact, the word so here, for God so loved, actually that word so means in this way. God loved in this way. He gave his son. That's the way he loved. He demonstrated that love. Of course, Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died. Often we think of love differently than what God's love is. We think of love as a feeling. I have warm feelings toward that person. And so therefore I love them. 
And the biblical love is, uh, is action. God demonstrated His love in action by sending His Son. So God demonstrated love. Secondly, God extended love. For God so loved who? The world. Who is the world? Well, Leon Morris in his commentary defines it this way. The world in this context most likely refers to the sum of the divine creation which has been shattered by the fall, which stands under the judgment of God and in which Jesus Christ appears as the Redeemer. The world is in some sense personified as the great opponent of the Redeemer in salvation history. It is the world of sinners who are in need of a Redeemer, a Rescuer, a Savior. It's more than just the Jews. and It's more than just Americans. Anyone in this world who is under the condemnation of the judgment of God because of sin. D.A. Carson explains it this way, and I, I like the way he puts this. He says, the world in John is a symbol of all that is in rebellion against God. All that is loveless and disobedient. All that is selfish and sinful. When we read through, therefore, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, we're not only to think that God's love is being praised by reference to the world's bigness, but by the reference to its badness. This ugly sinful, rebellious world, this sewer of infidelity, this glut of endless selfishness, this habitation of cruelty, this lover of violence, this promoter of greed, this maker of idols, this world is the world that God so loved. And He loved it so much that He sent His Son. God extended love to the very least and worst of all mankind. Sometimes we think that we have sinned beyond the love of God. We cannot possibly out-sin the blood of Jesus. In one sense, we'll say, well, yes, we know the blood of Jesus is powerful. It is the blood of of. God Himself, right, in the form of a, a human being, a sinless human being. The, the blood of Christ is, is all-powerful. In the next breath, we'll think to ourselves, but I can never be forgiven. Do we believe it or don't we believe it? You cannot possibly, your sin cannot possibly be greater than the greatness of the power of the blood of Jesus. That doesn't mean your sin is not bad. It is. It required the blood of Jesus. But the blood of Jesus is sufficient. God extended that love. And there is no one who is excluded from the extension of God's love. Thirdly, you see, God demonstrated love. God Extended love and God sacrificially gave love. He gave it and it was a sacrifice. His only begotten Son. That means one and only, unique, 
one of a kind. There's only one. His name is Jesus. And he gave himself. In fact, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. A clear indication, speaking of the cross, that he would go and hang upon one day. In fact, in John chapter 12, he makes reference to it again and clearly tells us this. In verses 32 and 33, he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, and will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this, verse 33 says, to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Jesus said, I will be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, it is in that lifting up, what I accomplish when I'm lifted up upon the cross, I will in that event draw people to myself. Because it is through the death of Jesus on the cross that our sins have been covered and paid for. That's the only way that we can come into a relationship with God. God sacrificially gave His own Son as a payment price for your sin and mine. Again, Leon Morris says, His love is not a vaguely sentimental feeling, but a love that costs Him. God gave what was most dear to Him to purchase our salvation. You see, as believers, if we, if we think about the love of God, and we think about what God did to bring us into His family, kind of like a neighbor inviting us over for dinner, we might be thankful, but it isn't going to change our life. We might say, well, it was really nice of them to invite us over. I didn't have to cook dinner tonight. I, I got to go and have dinner with someone else and have pleasant conversation uh, but that's not going to change my life. God gave His Son to die in our place so that we would not have to pay the price for our own sin, so that we can have a relationship with God, be forgiven of our sin, and have an eternal uh, relationship where one day when we breathe our last breath on this earth, we will be in glory with Him. He paid the ultimate price to extend and demonstrate love. That's the gift that God has given for you and for me. Well, the second part of the verse tells us the gift received. What does this require? Well, we see the recipients, first of all. That whoever, that whoever, that whoever means anyone and everyone, anyone and everyone. Spiros Zodiades, who is a Greek, who is also a Greek scholar, said the word whoever means the individual within the totality and the totality of the individuals. In other words, it is very individualistic. It is for one individual within the totality of all. It's very specific. Whoever means you and means me. 
specifically, individually, but it extends to the totality of all individuals. Whoever means whoever, but there's a qualifier, and that is whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in Christ. To believe involves three primary things. It involves a knowledge of something. It involves a mental assent to that. And it involves a confidence in. Let me explain. We have to have a knowledge of something. What is that something? Well, we've got to know that we are a sinner. We've got to know that that sin has eternal consequences. Many people know that they're not perfect. There are a few out there that think they might be. At least they act like they are. But we need to know that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard and that that falling short it's not just a mistake. It's not just a, an insufficiency that I can overcome by maybe trying a little harder. There are eternal consequences to sin. I'll be separated forever from the love of God. I also need to know that God has done something about that consequence. God has provided a way of escape from the consequence of my sin. And he, he did it through his son Jesus. I need to have some knowledge of these things. And so when you and I present the gospel to somebody, we need to make sure they understand why they need a Savior. Why this is good news to them. Because they're in a predicament. They're in a, they have a problem they can't solve. But Jesus solves it. He is the answer to their problem. There's the knowledge of. We need to make a mental ascent to that. That is, we must believe those facts to be true. Someone might say, well, you know, I've heard about Jesus being born in a manger, and I see those, those creches out there, and, and, uh, and they might think, well, that's just part of all the other stuff that's, you know, the, the make-believe stuff about this time of year. It's all part of the story. You've got to mix it all together, and, and they know about it, but they don't really make any real mental assent to the fact that this is, this is really true. And the same at Easter time. Well, I, I know there is uh, this story about Jesus dying on the cross and, and coming back to life. Uh, uh, you know, that's part of what we celebrate, but uh, is it really true? I, did it really happen? I, I don't know. I mean, you see, we've got to not only know the, the facts, we've got to make a mental ascent. This is truth. This is what really happened. But that's not enough. We also have to put our confidence in that fact, in those truths. We have to lay the weight of our confidence in this reality. That Jesus really did die on a cross and was raised. And he really did take the consequences of my sin and pay for them. And I'm trusting in that for my salvation. I don't have to prove to God that I was worthy of Jesus dying. He 
because I can't. And so I accept this as the free gift that it is. And you see, when we come with that, that kind of belief, we know, we make a mental ascent, we believe that these things are true, and we put our confidence in that, there is something that happens inside of us. We are forgiven and set free from the consequences of sin. There's a transaction in heaven that happens, and we receive the Holy Spirit within us. And He begins to work in us and give us a motivation to live differently. To want to live in a way that honors the One who gave His life for me. We're not going to do that perfectly. We're going to still mess up. There's still all kinds of things we've got to work at overcoming in our life. But God's Spirit now lives in us. We are a new creature in Christ, and He will help us. And we get, get encouragement and, and guidance and accountability from others along the way. And we grow in our understanding and the depth of understanding of these things and what God expects of me as a follower of Christ, as a child of His. And, and I desire to do that. And certainly reading through the Scriptures and gaining a better understanding of these things is part of that process. But the qualifier is that I must believe in Christ. He is the object of our belief. How many times do you hear in our world people say, well, you just have to have faith. But they never give a, an object to that faith. You just have to have faith. What am I supposed to have faith in? Faith, faith in faith. Faith in yourself. Faith in that fate. That something's going to happen good. Just, just have faith. That's absurd. You don't just have faith in faith. You put your faith in someone. In something. And the Bible says that our faith must be in Jesus and what He accomplished on our behalf. So there is a recipient, whoever, the qualifier, believes in Him, and thirdly, the outcome, we shall not perish. Which means to be destroyed or to be lost. But instead, we shall have life. Life everlasting. This life that we have is both referring to the quality of life and the quantity of life. Yes, we will live on forever. But see, everybody will live on forever. Somewhere. Because this idea of perishing is also an eternal concept. A person outside of Christ will perish eternally. They will be lost forever. They will be separated from God's love forever. But they will continue to live on in a place separated from God's love which is a place of torment. But this life is life in the presence of God with Him for all of eternity. But it's also a quality of life, a quality that we live. We're in a relationship with God now. We have the spirit of life living inside of us. Encouraging, motivating, challenging, convicting, guiding us gifting us to serve Him and His purposes, to live a life that honors Him, to live the life that we were created and designed truly to live. A life where we can love and be loved genuinely and authentically. So many in our world are longing for real, authentic love. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. 
The desire to be loved is not a wrong desire. But the place to find it is in Jesus. A relationship with Him, and then we can find it in relationships with one another. I find myself oftentimes thanking God for my relationship with Valerie. And I will often express it to her. How thankful I am for the marriage relationship that we have because we both want to honor Christ and both want to pursue Christ. And both, and she better than I, <laughs> serve each other. What can you want in this life from a relationship? Somebody who loves you for who you are and, and knows you very well and loves you in spite of who you are. The outcome of our belief in Christ because of what Christ did for us is life, life eternal, life abundant, this life that God has for us. As opposed to the opposite, which is to perish and to be separated, lost forever from God. <clears throat> J.C. Ryle, in his comments on John's gospel, says this, <clears throat> Faith in the Lord Jesus is the key, the very key of salvation. He is, or he that has it has life, he that has it not has not life. It's that simple. Nothing whatever beside this faith is necessary to our complete justification, but nothing whatever except this faith will give us an interest in Christ. You have it or you don't. You believe or you don't. He says we may, la we may fast and mourn for sin, do many things that are right, use religious ordinances, and give all our goods to feed the poor, and yet remain unpardoned and lost in our sin. But if we will only come to Christ as guilty sinners and believe on Him, our sins shall at once be forgiven and our iniquities shall be entirely put away. Without faith there is no salvation, but through faith in Jesus, the vilest sinner may be saved. That's good news. It's good news for all of us, wherever we are in this journey. The image that Jesus used was the image of Moses. And we'll end with this. Moses is out in the wilderness and the people start complaining. We, we, want, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to have the way we had it. And, and they're complaining to him. And so, so God brings judgment upon them for their, their complaining. And so he brings these fiery serpents, these venomous snakes into the camp and they begin to bite them. Uh, and the people are dying. And so they cry out to Moses... Pray for us. We have sinned. And so Moses prays, and God says, here's the solution. I want you to, to craft a, a, a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and set it in the community, set it among the camp of, the, of, of Israel. And everyone who looks to that serpent will not die from the snake bite. But everyone who doesn't will continue to die. That's the gospel. Right? Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted up, I have to be lifted up. Jesus was lifted up. 
All of us have been bitten right, by sin. And the consequence of that is we will die. In fact, we've already died spiritually. And if we die physically in a spiritually dead state, we will be dead for eternity, separated from God's love. But if we look to the one who's been lifted up, and not just, they weren't just to look at it, they were to look on it. They were to put their confidence in that symbol of God's love and forgiveness that would represent what he would do thousands of years later when Jesus hung on the cross as the perfect Lamb of God who took, takes away the sin of the world. When we look to Jesus who was lifted up on that cross, putting our confidence in what he did there, the eternal consequences of our sin have been removed and we will not die. We will physically die, but when we physically die, we will enter into glory with God. This is the picture. This is the story. This is the image that Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand. Because he says, I did not come into this world to judge the world, to judge all the sin in this world. No, I came to save this world. I came to save you. I came to save all who will acknowledge their sin and put their trust in, in me. So where are you looking? <laughs> who are you looking to? Sometimes people think, well, I, I've done so many bad things or bad things have been done to me. I'm not worth anything. No. You're worth the life of Jesus. Would you look to him? Would you trust in him? Oh, Father, help me to more fully understand the gift of love that you've given. Help us to grasp the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Help us to remember as we celebrate your birth. Help us to remember the death, burial, and resurrection. That he came to accomplish. And what that means for us. And God, I pray if there's somebody here or online that is in that place where they say, I, I don't know. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know how terrible a person I am. I don't need to know. God knows. And clearly, Jesus came for you. To save you from your sin. To do a mighty work in you. Lord, thank you for doing this. Lord, I pray for those here today and online who are already believers in Christ and, and yet struggle at times overcoming sin, sinful patterns and sinful habits in their life. And they wonder, is there any hope for me now? I've already come to Christ and yet I'm still struggling greatly. 
and even giving in at times to these things. God, thank you that your power is perfected in our weakness. So as we yield to you, you can work in us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is important for us to keep in mind when we're battling sin. Because this is where hope is found. I pray that you'll do a mighty work in us. Give us a greater, stronger foundation and a greater motivation to live our lives for Jesus. Through this simple message of John 3.16. Father, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave the greatest gift. The most expensive, elaborate gift you could ever give. Bring us into your family. We praise you now, Father. Today, Lord, for your goodness, mercy, and grace. It's in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus that we pray.